0: Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. Miss sat at her high desk on her high seat, peering down at the children before her. There were at least a hundred, although she'd had more in other classes before. The little ones wriggled and squirmed in their seat, while the older ones sat at the back trying to remember not to slouch. At the front of the room, a small fire burned, but it could never hope to reach most of the children, who blew on their cold fingers. Come July, the same children would be pink-cheeked and greasy from the humidity, as heat burnt through the classroom windows and rose up from hot little bodies crushed on one long bench. Not that any of them dare complain. She ruled them with an iron fist, or at least a bamboo cane she smacked it against the blackboard beside her, the children jumped into action, reciting the words before them. She commanded respect, even though she had no actual qualifications in the education of children. It was this way throughout most of the 19th century. Schools were a patchwork affair of religious or private institutions, available to those who could afford it. That excluded many working class children, and it was meant to. The idea of educating the working classes was seen as dangerous, likely to fuel disobedience or even uprisings. But as the Industrial Revolution steamed ahead, it became apparent that a workforce that could not read or write was holding back economic growth. The new machines were complicated to operate and they needed clerks in their offices. In 1870, the state began taking control of education. By 1880, it became compulsory for all children up to the age of 10 and by 1891, it was free for all. The birth of education for the masses gave rise to a better organised teaching workforce. In 1870, the National Union of Teachers was formed. Amongst other things, they campaigned for properly qualified teachers and the blacklisting of those without qualifications. This prompted a change in the types of people entering the profession most notably an increase in male teachers. However, women held strong. Many middle-class women joined to do their bit. For working-class gifted girls, it provided escape. At this time, most women were educated to be wives or servants. In the 1880s, one in three young women aged between 15 and 20 were domestic servants. They were treated like children, working gruelling long days of drudgery. If you were lucky, you'd get Sunday afternoon off. Equally, it could depend on the mood of your master. For many in East London, the Industrial Revolution provided alternative opportunities. Factory work involved long hours and unsanitary, if not outright life-threatening conditions. But it did pay more. If you had a few brains, though, you became a pupil teacher. At age 13, promising pupils could be identified by their headmaster to become pupil teachers, to help with the education of the younger children while continuing their own. It was essentially an apprenticeship, which you did for around five years, before becoming a teacher with qualifications of sorts. In 1902, regulations for the pupil-teacher system were tightened up. That same year, local education authorities began establishing teacher training colleges to meet the rising demand. By 1907, the pupil-teacher system had more or less died out. So women teachers were by definition well-educated. What's more, they held jobs that gave them status equal to men. So why were they being paid so much less? As the new century broke, women would tolerate this no longer. The emergence of the new woman provided the catalyst many teachers had been waiting for. The new woman argued for independence, but not just independence of mind. She wanted independence of dress and physical activities such as cycling. She also wanted economic independence. It was an all-out rejection of the 1854 Coventry-Patmore poem The Angel in the House, which presented women's servitude to marriage and the family as saintly. The new woman was tearing that poem up and throwing it on the fire. The suffragettes rose out of the new woman movement, seeing female franchise as key to independence. Many suffragettes were also teachers and they lobbied within the NUT for support of women's suffrage. They were not successful. So they turned their attention to equal pay, which enjoyed wide support from women NUT members. They put forward resolutions at the NUT annual conference in 1904, 1913, 1914 and 1916. They were all defeated. The 1913 resolution was proposed by Minnie Lansbury from East London. Minnie secured her first teaching post in 1911. She joined the NUT becoming a local subs collector. Her political drive was apparent from the outset, but where it came from is unclear. Maybe it formed as a result of growing up on the streets where few children had shoes, and half of all babies died before they reached their first birthday. It may have been her commitment to the Jewish principles of Yiddishkeit, which embraces the collective spirit of trade unionism. Whichever, it found its way to her, and by 1913 she was proposing a resolution on equal pay. She lost by just one vote. The outbreak of war in 1914 caused huge disruption to the education system. As men enlisted, women stepped up to fill the sudden gaping hole in Britain's classrooms. Previously, when a woman teacher married, she was forced out of the profession. During the war, the marriage bar was lifted as local education authorities scrabbled around to fill teaching vacancies. But while women now made up the majority in teaching, their pay remained unequal. 1918 when men returned from the front many were bitter and angry they were supposed to be heroes but the reality was far from that they were disabled and disfigured many suffered psychological wounds that left them weeping trembling and collapsing behaviors most commonly associated with women they wanted their jobs back and their pride no woman was standing in their way In education, men launched an active campaign of hostility towards women teachers, a campaign mostly supported by the unions. It began with the marriage bar, which was reintroduced after the war. By 1926, three quarters of all local education authorities operated one. It was men's way of telling women they were not wanted. So on the eve of their wedding, women were forced to write letters of resignation, and the already married ones were sacked. Others found ways around it by having a very long engagement or marrying in secret and living apart. Now they dealt with the married women, it was time to crush the demand for equal pay. We'll hear more about that after the break. Do you enjoy stories of women who broke the rules and changed the way our society thinks and acts well there are loads more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk there is also a walking tour app where you can take yourself on guided tours around local heritage landmarks and resources for younger members of your family to learn about this fascinating but largely untold history find all that and more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk I'm Esther Freeman, this is Rebel Women, we're back with part 2, Fight Back. In 1918, the People's Representation Act gave some women the vote. While a success for many, the move signaled the end of the women's movement as it had been. With the demand for the vote no longer consolidating them, divides in feminist political beliefs became more apparent. The movement fragmented, and some lost their drive for campaigning altogether. Yet one group stayed together. They still had much to fight for. By 1917, women teachers felt remaining in the NUT was a waste of time. Ruthlessly gagged in meetings and shouted down at conference, the women had had enough. The National Federation of Women Teachers broke away from the NUT and in 1920, they formed an independent union called the National Union of Women Teachers. The organization grew quickly and soon had a number of local branches across the country. Although equal pay and the conditions of women teachers was their primary focus, they extended their services to social and cultural events. This included dinners, garden parties, theatrical productions and concerts. Ethel Froude, a teacher from East Ham, became the first General Secretary of the National Union of Women Teachers. Born in 1880, she was the daughter of a butcher, She eagerly joined the Women's Social and Political Union and spoke regularly at meetings. Despite her round, kindly face, she was known for her militant actions and controversy. One time, she was protected from a mob at a train station when railway officials locked her in a waiting room for her own protection. She was one of the few suffragettes who continued campaigning after 1918 for full female franchise. She led the last deputation to the Prime Minister in 1927. Votes for all women under 30 was granted the following year. Ethel was a good organiser, skilled at creating harmony and a sense of unified purpose. She was also a brilliant speaker, addressing demonstration of teachers campaigning for equal pay at Trafalgar Square. As she rallied the crowd behind her blue banners in green, golden, cream silk, bearing the slogan, Who would be free herself must strike the first blow. Yet, Ethel and the other feminist teachers had an uphill struggle. Despite women proving their willingness and adaptability during war, in 1918, a departmental committee recommended a differentiation in teachers' salary based on men's greater family responsibilities. This ignored that women also had responsibilities, including caring for older relatives or contributing to family income if still living at home. According to the 1921 census, 60% of male teachers had no family commitments. In 1929, the Great Depression caused severe worldwide economic hardship. The crisis hit schools hard, forcing some to close and the suspension of new building projects. By 1930, there were 1,100 unemployed, newly qualified teachers. Despite this, the equal pay debate was revived. In 1935 and 1936, MPs debated the issue in the House of Commons. Yet in the 1936 budget, the Chancellor gave tax breaks to married men and not women, a move condemned by feminist teachers. As the decade rolled on, the issue of equal pay remained unresolved. But as Britain geared up for another war, which once again asked women to do their bit, some decided they'd had enough of being paid less than men. Join us next week as engineers, construction workers and women pilots join the fight back. This is Rebel Women. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For show notes, reading lists, and further stories about East London women, visit our website eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the Barry Emil and Norma Melbourne Trust for their support of today's episode.